Welcome to the Texas Home Improvement Super Podcast with Jim Dutton. All the best calls this week throughout the state of Texas. Brought to you by Carrier. Turn to the experts. Let's head over to Keller and Bill. This is Jim. How can I help you? Hi, Jim. Uh, I have uh, recently been approved for a new roof, and I've got my insurance estimates and all that. But one of my neighbors put a black roof on. And it looks really sharp, but is there a problem putting a black roof on a home in Texas? No. You know, you'll hear people say, oh, the black's going to be so much hotter. Here's the deal. A black roof, yes, during the day can get hot faster, and it may even get slightly warmer. But if you got good ventilation in the attic, that's really not going to happen. But the advantage to a black roof is it releases the heat quicker at night than a light-colored roof. The light-colored roofs actually hold the heat later into the night than the dark-coloreds do. So uh, the other advantage is they don't show the pollution and dirt and stuff that settles and, and uh, sits on a roof. So, no, you don't have to worry about that a bit. And I, I will tell you, on my own house, I've got a darker roof. Okay, well, thank you very much. You're welcome, Bill. Thanks for addressing my question on air regarding my recent shower removal project. My new question is, what is your preference and or which type would be the most appropriate application when installing walls for shower facing an exterior wall? Standard Hardy Backer 500 cement board or Hardy Backer Hydro Defense. All I see is one is water mold resistant and the other is waterproof and costlier. Thanks in advance and look forward to the show. Well, William, you know, you actually could go either way. Uh, if you have a concern that water is going to go in behind it, you know, then you get the waterproof one. But quite frankly, just your standard hardy backer board will work just fine. Because unlike using sheetrock back there, the hardy board gets wet, it's not going to crumble. The key thing is, if you go with just a standard hardy board, and this is any concrete backer board, put a vapor barrier behind it. And I'm not saying put plastic behind it. Put some Tyvek or hardy wrap, something like that, that stops water from going through, but still is breathable. And you'll be just fine. You don't have to worry about it. Because even if the concrete backer board gets wet, it doesn't start to crumble or get soft or lose its strength to hold the tile that's attached to it. So, like I said, either one will work just fine for you. Let's head to Frisco and Harley, this is Jim. How can I help you? How you doing? Thank you so much for taking my call. Really enjoy your show. Um, it's really helpful. Uh, my question is, if you are if you were going to build a house from scratch, would you put it on a pier and beam or would you put it on a poured slab? And if you did do a poured slab, would you put piers down the bedrock below it? The absolute first thing I would do is have a soils test done and find out what the soils engineer recommends as far as a foundation. Uh, because they will give you recommendations whether, yeah, this is suitable for a slab or you'd be better off with pier and beam or block and base on this 
piece of property. Uh, and then the, the pier depth, if required, would be set. Everything's good. And, you know, a lot of times people skip this step because they say, oh, I don't want to spend the $1,800 on a soils test. Let me tell you, when you got to hire me to come out and fix your foundation, I start at 2000 and it goes up from there. That $1,800 was would be very well spent on new construction. Now, as far as which way would I look at as far as, you know, pier and beam or a slab, it, it really depends on the architecture style of the home that I'm going to build. You know, if, if you're going to have a, a nice big porch in the front or a wraparound porch or anything like that, uh, quite frankly, block and base, pier and beam, they look gorgeous on that type of foundation. But if you're going to do just a ranch-style house, well, they look better being on a slab foundation. So uh, your style of home depends a lot. Now, in other parts of Texas, are you looking at building that here in the DFW area or somewhere else? I was just looking for property at this point and okay. see if, um, you know, and the reason I bring that up, uh, I'm going to use Houston as an example. You know, I'm, I'm here in the, the DFW area, but I go down to Houston virtually every week. And because of all the flooding that they've had over the years, their building codes have changed to the point where virtually all new homes are being built, either pier and beam or block and base. They're elevated so that they don't flood mm -hmm. as often. And so that's the reason I say it kind of depends on where you're wanting to build, but my first call would be to the soils engineer and find out what you got for for soil and what their recommendation would be. And what what they're looking for is the swell potential of the soil. And then, you know, like you just mentioned, the bedrock. How far down do they got to go to really set this thing on rock or a stable layer that's going to hold a house without having to do repairs later? Great. Well, it sounds like a good plan. So find your lot. Uh, now, when you're picking a lot, one of the things I want to caution you on is the flatter, the better. Uh, when you start getting into lots that have a slope, it actually gets very expensive to build on them uh, because you got to offset that slope. And so you're either bringing in material to build it up to offset it or on the back, or front, you know, depending on which way the thing is sloping, you know, the low side, you've got to build higher piers and higher uh, stem walls and things like that. So all of that costs money. So the flatter the lot, at least in the area where you want to build, the cheaper it is to build. Well, I know that um, it, that makes a whole lot of sense as far as getting the soil sample and as far as whether or not you want to put piers underneath it slab uh i remember back 20 30 years ago and las colinas had built a bunch of houses out there oh my goodness yeah it, it was crazy one house i walked into and the steps were inclined and when i got up there the middle of the house was sloping about six or eight inches from yep. from the rest of the house and that really makes a big difference las colinas has the most expansive soil in the state of texas uh it has literally been measured to expand and contract in a matter of just a couple of months 13 inches with the moisture change oh in gosh. the soil and it, it, virtually everything that's built in that area now 
is pure and bean. No slabs at all because you're just not going to keep a, a slab stable building. You guarantee you will be doing remedial foundation repair. But even on a pier and bean, you've got to maintain drainage and things like that to keep it from moving. And, and in Las Colinas, it's just been a nightmare for people to keep up with that. Very good. Thank you so much for the you information. Bet. Take care. Donna in Arlington. Welcome to Texas Home Improvement. Hello. How are you today? I'm good. <clears throat> uh, the, my question is, my um, I'm getting moisture leaching into the hearth of my fireplace. And I've put up new flashing. I've put in a new chimney cap. Um, I uh, have built, a, had a diverter built so that when it comes down the side of the chimney, it will divert the water. Mm-hmm. And now the hardwood floor around the hearth is rotting. And the hearth has a moldy white powder on it. Kind of looks like cotton candy? Yeah. Okay. So, hey, any suggestions? <laughs> is it wet up? On the fireplace itself, or is it all down on the slab level? It's just all down on the slab level. You're getting moisture from under the slab coming up. Yeah. So yeah, how I do I stop that? I don't think it's in the fireplace itself. The first thing to look okay. at is the drainage around the house to make sure that there's not some place where there's standing water. Uh, because okay. any standing water will tend to come in. The second thing... Look at how much foundation you have showing. Uh, you know, a foundation has a perimeter concrete beam around it, and then mm-hmm. the, the interior part is pretty much just four inches, except for where there is cross beams and stuff. But the majority of it is only four inches thick. And when you get the ground up into that four-inch level, just through static pressure of the moisture in the soil, it will start wicking up through the concrete and that white powder stuff that you're seeing is called effervescence and it's a chemical reaction where moisture gets into the concrete and mixes with the stone that's in the concrete mix mm-hmm. if that stone wasn't washed real good there is a coating on it that produces that effervescence when it gets okay. wet and so by trying to lower the soil get the moisture out of that concrete you'll minimize that effervescence problem. Okay. I do have the, uh, my sprinkler guy is coming out because I do have a sprinkler that hits the back side of the fireplace wall. Ah, yeah. And he's coming out Monday to uh, redirect that. Okay. And I do have flower beds around the um, base of the fireplace, so I can check that moisture yeah, level che- there. Check that moisture, and then also, like I said, make sure that you got about four inches of concrete slab showing. So that, okay. That, because otherwise, you know, when you water, the soil gets wet for the for the watering, or in in some cases, people have uh, trim, you know, uh, borders around the fire, the uh, mm-hmm. plants and stuff, the flower beds, right? That holds water in for several hours. And, and that's I do a, have that. It's a raised that, bed. Yep, that's a kiss of death. You're that's putting moisture in to it, and that will cause the problem that you're having. Okay. 
Okay. Well, thank you. Because I've been racking my brains trying to figure out where it was coming from. Well, that should get you taken care of. Okay. Now all all it takes is replanting everything. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Maybe I'll put something else there. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Okay. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Take care. Okay. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Bye. Look, again, I do foundation repair. Part of foundation repair is I do a lot of drainage work. And, you know, the the drains, the moisture that gets around foundations, people just don't realize how much damage that can cause. All You know, we were talking about Las Colinas a minute ago, the expansiveness of that soil. And I, I, I said 13 inches in just a matter of a couple of months. It's all in the moisture content. Our soils, when they dry out, they shrink. When they get wet, they expand again. Not as much as they were before. That causes foundation movement. But that also is what causes all these other issues. Moisture, and you know, I talk about this on roofing sometimes as well. Moisture is the kiss of death of all structures because it damages things. Whether it's the foundation or the roof, it's going to damage things. And it, it's impossible to keep the soil dry all the time. Now we get into droughts and yeah, it stays dry, but uh, that's a reason you typically want to keep it watered and moist so it stays expanded, but you got to have the soil level down far enough to where, you know, the the moisture that's in the soil isn't up into the upper parts of the foundation. Uh, water seeks its own levelness. Concrete is porous and will take on moisture. Jack, this is Jim. How can I help you? Uh, yeah, I have an older house, and I have uh, hardwood floors. And I just wonder if I have a contractor out, how do they bid the job? Is it by square foot or by the whole job or the rooms or, you know, what do you mean? What am I looking for? Well, they're typically going to do it by the square foot and linear foot of wall space. Because the the along the walls, if they're refinishing a floor, and, and that's what you're asking about is getting it refinished, right? Right, right. Yeah. See, along the walls, all that's handwork. Uh, the, they use a big machine out in the open floor, but along all the walls is handwork. So uh, it's going to be by linear feet of how many how much wall space they have to do by hand, and then okay. you know, the, the feet, the square footage of the open area, uh, and then. Quite frankly, they'll add something for difficult situations that that they may see in doing the project. Right, and then and then how long does that usually take? By the time you know they start ripping off the clapboards and <laughs> finishing the project. Oh, well, I mean, say give... per room. If if they do a room in a day, you know, by the time they stain it and cover it and whatever, is that a couple three days? Yes, it, it actually will be, in there, and they're not going to want to do it a room at a time. They're going to want to do everything at once uh, just right. because they get the equipment going and, and stuff. But it, typically the process is going to be they got to come in and, you know, obviously remove all the trims around the sides first. Then they're going to sand it. Then they're going to have to get all the dust off of it and probably do another light sanding. Then they'll put the stain on it. and and, uh, do whatever final touch-up they got to do on that. And then normally it'll get top-coated with usually anywhere from two to three 
finishes on the surface before it's done, and it's got to dry in between each of these steps. So right. normally you're looking at a good solid week to do a project like this. So that means I got to move out by then. If it's all your rooms, yep. <laughs> okay, thanks, Jim. You bet. Take care. And 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 I know there's people out there who will try to shortcut it and say, "Oh no, you don't want them. You don't. You don't need to move out. We'll come in and do it. And you know, you you stay over here and we'll work around. Don't do it." It is dusty. It is messy. And uh, you're going to want to have everything covered and sealed up as much as possible when you're doing this. You know, I, t I talk about it in foundation repair, coming in and jackhammering holes in concrete, creating a, a big mess in the house. Sanding floors does the same thing. It does create a mess in the house. And, yeah, I did, most of the time, if you're doing... a the majority of the house, if not all of it. If you're doing all of it, you definitely want to be moved out. Eddie, how are you today? Good, Jim. How about you? Doing good. Hey, well, I was going to pick your brain on a shed. I live in a community that has all the HOA stuff, and I have a lot of utility easements. And I don't have a lot of area to put a shed, so I was thinking about budding it up to part of the house where it's just brick, and I was going to get your take on that. How good if that's something that can cause damage to the house or now are you looking are you looking at one of the lean-to type you know where the the inside wall of the shed's going to be the brick wall of the house yes yes sir okay yeah not a problem at all okay and uh, i guess what the guy's going to do it if should they actually uh bolt it to the brick or it should be kind of freestanding but just buttered up to the house you know it can be done either way. Uh, be honest with you, if I was building one, I would probably bolt it to the, to the brick, though. And the main reason, if you leave them independent, the way our soils are, things are going to expand and contract. They're going to move separate, and you'll end up with a gap. By bolting it in, uh, you, you hold everything together and don't start getting, you know, gaps where you don't want them. Okay, no movement. Okay, yep. so that's going to have a concrete slab, but it up to that house lab and then yeah goes, okay so i'm going to have them i wasn't sure how you know big pull brick from the house if it shifted that was my concern no it's, it, it won't i mean there the the little how big a lean-to shed are you looking at it's going to be about 12 feet across and then uh just five feet away from the house yeah so uh, you'll be fine because what's going to twist instead of the how instead of the brick coming loose oh, okay well, okay excellent well, thank you for that, that um, you bet. information. I appreciate it. Not a problem. Good luck with that, Eddie. J.D., we're going to be real tight on time here, but let's go ahead and get started. Oh, hi. Yes, uh, thanks for taking my call. You bet. Uh, I have a, a sprinkler system uh, problem, and I have about nine uh, different zones on it. Um, some of the uh, sprinkler heads will not come up out of the ground, Um I only have about four zones working currently. Um, I don't want to just dug, uh, dig up my whole yard to, no. to figure out. So what what do I do to do I get a metal detector? Or what, no. How do you go about doing I'll this? tell you what, JD, I'm going to put you on hold. And when I okay. come back, we'll start addressing your sprinkler system. When we left, I was talking with JD about his sprinkler system. And 
JD, have you gone to the control boxes and manually opened the valves yet to see if the sprinkler heads themselves are working? Uh, no, uh, no. I just uh, I clicked the manual uh, portion that says just if you want to manually um, right okay do each zone. So I don't. I didn't know if there's if there's valves on the box. There are. All, okay. all of them all of them are going to have valves and it's a solenoid valve that actually goes back to the uh controls panel that you know where you're hitting that manual okay. and it sends an electric signal out well if the solenoid has gone bad it won't open and so the first thing i always recommend is let's check to make sure that the system is working go to where you'll see those little round green tops in the yard there's okay. solenoid. That's where the solenoid valves are. And if you look down in there, there'll be a thing that looks like a D-sized battery coming out the top, usually with red wires. And uh, alongside of it is just this little, about a half-inch round knob that you can turn, and that will open up and let the water flow. And if the heads come on that way, it could be nothing more than that solenoid is bad. And you can unscrew that thing pop a new one in, hook the wires up, and you're good to go again. Uh, okay. So it, it, it's relatively simple to fix, but the first thing to do is make sure we're getting water to everything. Right, right. Okay. Uh, like I said, only four or five zones work currently. Yeah, so. yeah, and that's okay. and that's why I'm thinking you got probably solenoids that are going bad. Okay. And you don't have to replace the whole valve, just that, just that D-looking battery size thing on the top and that usually gets them going again good to know thank you thank you so you much you bet take care right. bye-bye jonathan how can i help you oh, i had a question about solar and uh, geothermal um have a hard time finding any solid information on solar it seems like a lot of uh give us all your information it's hard cells I mean, is that technology not quite there yet or do you have any experience with either solar or geothermal that it would be worth uh, upfront investment on either system? I have actually experience in both. And solar works well, but it's still unbelievably expensive. Uh, the only way it prices out to where it's cost effective is if you can get good rebates from your power company and tax credits. If you actually have to write a check for the entire system, it takes so many years to pay for itself that the system is almost obsolete by the time it's done paying for itself. Uh, and they do have a limited lifespan, typically like 25 years. And it's not unusual if you've got to write the check for it uh, to take 20 years to pay for the thing. So that's... Okay. the. Uh, that anytime though there's tax rebates and and uh, uh, or I'm sorry tax credits and rebates from the power company, then it becomes extremely affordable because they'll sometimes pick up half three quarters of the cost of it. Then yeah, then it's very well worth looking at. Okay. Uh, as far as geothermal, those were great systems in the past. Uh, they would operate at like a 36-seer rating and things like that. But the the mini-splits, ductless systems, have come so far in advancement 
that it no longer justifies the cost of a geothermal. It's cheaper to go with the ductless system, and you're getting uh, sear ratings that are very similar to a geothermal system. Interesting. Okay, I mean, I'm not crazy about that little block that hangs out on the on the wall. That to me is a visual uh, detraction. Yeah, on that mini. Well, system, the, but... they actually make what's called. Uh, they actually make a, a ceiling mount system as well. Um, mm-hmm. it, it it looks kind of similar to to like what you would see in an RV, where it's just mounted up in the ceiling, so it's slightly bigger than a regular air conditioning. Uh, vent, you know, ducted type vent, but it, mm-hmm. I have one of those in my house, and it, it works extremely well. Rodney, how are you today? Hey, good, sir. Thanks so much for taking my call, Jim. Nice to talk to you. Thank you, sir. How can I help you? So just real quick, uh, I had my, I live in a mobile home, and I had my roof redone about, I don't know, five months ago. And uh-huh. they put the continuous uh, Cobra Ridge vent all the way down the home. So on the sides, I have the soffit vents that go the length of the home as well. So yesterday, I cleaned all the cottonwood off of those because they were pretty clogged all the way down on both sides, got that all done. So my question is to you, uh, would it be good to take like uh, an air compressor and blow those uh, vents out all the way down the length of the home? Because when they had the the roof off, I noticed that the... um, the insulation uh, that was blown in there was mm-hmm. was covering all uh, from all the way to the to the vent itself to, to the soffit vent. Okay. So I was going to try to get a, a spray hose and like like use the air to blow sure. that stuff maybe off away from it. What do you think about that? It, sh- it doesn't hurt a thing. In fact, uh, you you know if you don't want to drag the hose around, if you've got a leaf blower, you yeah. can use it, and they actually work extremely well for blowing that insulation up out of the way and then that leaves a path then for the air to travel like you need it to so absolutely go ahead and do that that's exactly what i wanted to hear from you sir all right take care all right sir you too have a great weekend you know when we went to break i I made a comment that i think generators are going to become more and more critical for us and i'm going to tell you up front i I think this for a, a few reasons uh one is the fact that we're adding more and more to the grid. We got more and more people moving in to the Texas area all the time. Every time we build another house, every time we build another commercial building, we're adding to the amount of electricity that our generators, and I'm talking about the power plants, have to produce in order to keep up with all this. And quite frankly, when was the last time you saw a new power plant built in the state of Texas? And think about what you what you see on the news. Well, two plants in the state of Texas were down for maintenance, and we don't have enough electricity to cool our homes and to heat our homes in the winter when this kind of stuff starts happening. And now they're mandating we're going to go to electric cars. I spent a week using an electric golf cart that I had to charge up with a generator on the RV. And let me tell you, that is not efficient and unless we start building some more power plants we're not going to be able to sustain everything going electric like they're trying to push us into doing and that's the reason i'm thinking 
these home generators are going to become more and more critical because I think we're going to be losing our power more and more all the time. Just a reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. All right. I said uh, Dennis would be up next, so we're going to Garland. And welcome to Texas Home Improvement. Thanks for taking my call, Jim. Well, my pleasure. Yeah, my question, our house was built in 1986. It's a post-tension foundation, and we've had basically no issues at all, uh, no cracks or anything. About a week ago, uh, on our patio side, my wife heard this loud boom. We couldn't figure out what it was. A couple of days after that, I was cleaning the pool and found some chunks of concrete, and uh, I was able to uh, check it back to our foundation and it looked like, or not looked like, one of the post-tension cables uh, blew out. Oh. About four inches of it is hanging out of the foundation. And I, I, all I can figure, would that be caused by an undue stress situation? I mean, it was completely embedded in concrete, so there was another, couldn't have been a rust situation. Well, no, actually, it, it is a rust situation more than likely. Uh, because oh. even even though it looks like they're embedded in concrete, they're in a sleeve so that they can't yes. slide in there. And okay. I'm, what I'm thinking is more than likely happened is on one end, it's got a key in order to lock it in place, you know, and they, they tension it up and then they yes. lock the other side. And one side okay. or the other has rusted probably and popped loose and let that okay. cable spring through. Okay. Is that something that needs to be fixed, or can it just be that end concreted over? What what would be the remedy? No, it, it actually does need to be fixed, and more than likely what they're going to have to do is, is uh, string a new cable through there. Now, okay. I'm going to tell you up front, you said this house was from, 90, from 86, you said, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, do you see the little cups on the side of the foundation? Are they like six eight feet apart or are they like four feet apart uh i think they're like three feet apart okay honestly if you didn't fix it it's not going to be the end of the world when they're that close together uh you know when they first and the reason i was asking that the the spacing is when they first started doing post-tension cables they actually were putting them way far apart i mean they had them six eight feet apart and it, that, and that just wasn't enough of them. Then they uh-huh. they they took them way down to three feet apart, and now they're kind of gone back out to about four feet apart. Uh, <laughs> so it, it's it's not going to be the end of the world if you don't get this fixed right away. But I would keep in mind that yeah, it should be restrung and and retention because the whole purpose of these cables are it keeps the concrete under compression uh, because. Okay. Uh, all concrete's going to crack by nature. And mm-hmm. we put rebar and post-tension cables in it to hold the concrete together when it cracks. I see. And, and uh, honestly, they, especially if that cable is still in there, hopefully they'll be able to just attach onto one end or the other and pull a new line through. through, and they'll, mm-hmm. they'll retension it, and that'll be the end of it. It, it costs uh, you know a few hundred dollars to get it done. Okay. 
So it, it's not it's not a huge deal. Let's head over to Garland and Brian. Welcome to KRLD. How can I help? I'm uh, getting ready for an appraisal, and uh, I heard that fire pits and decks uh, can help with the value of my house. Um, I I don't have a deck, but I have a patio that's like 60 by 30, and it's concrete. And then I also have this fire pit. The fire pit is just uh, it's uh, it's about four foot wide, and it I just put it right on the ground. It's uh, you know. Uh, Retaining wall bricks. It's three bricks high. And uh, I'm wondering if I should, uh, how much value things like that can add? Uh, and should I do anything to the fire pit? Like, should I put a, uh, a concrete base under it to make it look kind of pretty? <laughs> well, anything you do to make stuff pretty around the house definitely helps with the appraisal. Uh, now, I will tell you up front, a patio, uh, you know, is going to add so much per square foot depending on the size of the patio uh how much it's you know it's not a, a huge amount by any means and and a fire pit is probably going to add a, a few hundred dollars but it's not going to be a huge amount so I, I wouldn't do a whole lot uh of that kind of stuff in order to increase the the appraisal value but make darn sure it's all cleaned up real nice and and uh in good shape because if it's not that will count against you more than it will help you. And, you know, my son is going through the same thing he, because interest rates are so low right now. He's going to do a refinance on his house, and they're actually coming out tomorrow. He's got a nice patio he put in, and uh, we got a, a room that uh, he's uh, enclosed and air-conditioned and stuff, so it's added square footage to the house. We took our patio furniture down to his house in order to stage it so it looks better for the appraisal. Because, yes, it's all based on square footage and things like that, but there's a range, and you want it on the high end of the range rather than the low end of the range. <laughs> right, right. That's a great idea. Um, I uh, I noticed the the uh, the wording on the, the Dallas uh, CAD um, the appraisal district uh, on their website, they didn't say anything about patio, but there's a little check mark whether or not I have a sauna or a deck. Yep. So I wondered if a patio can be considered as a deck. It's considered a hard surface area, and so it, it, it does add into the value. All right. Well, that's great. Well, thank you very much. I, I, I hope your son well on his appraisal. Thank you, sir. Uh, well, I do, too. <laughs> Appreciate it, Brian. You take care. And again, our number, 214-787-1080. And again, you know, most of the appraisal stuff is based on square footage of the house, you know, how much of it's air-conditioned space and all this different things like that. But the visual counts. And please, please don't have anything under construction when they come out to do an appraisal because they will not do the appraisal yeah and i have uh my partner here on the the show brian who takes care of all all the, i get the privilege of just sitting here talking with you he has to do all the other work and uh he had an appraisal done on his one time and he was just painting his bathroom and they shut the appraisal down because he was under construction it is that nitpicky so don't have anything like that going on at the house 
when they come to do the appraisal. Make sure you got all that kind of stuff done and out of the way. But if you are thinking about doing a refinance, a cash out, anything like that to, to uh, take advantage of these low interest rates, I would tell you jump on it now and get that moving because uh, we're not far from interest rates starting to go up. And let's be real here. The interest rates are so low. I mean, they're under three in a lot of cases right now. There is no place for them to go but up. So if you're sitting on a, you know, three and a half, four or higher interest rate on your mortgage, I highly recommend that you look at uh, doing a, a refi on it. Uh, You've just heard the best calls and questions from Texas Home Improvement. For more information about our show, go to THIPro.com.